Hello and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News, where graduate student-run organization at Harvard University focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. I'm Delphine Tripp, a PhD student in the Systems Biology program at Harvard University, and today I'll be talking with Sharon Spivak all about fermentation. So I, for one, am a huge fan of fermented foods. Some things I eat almost daily are yogurt, kimchi, I love kombucha tea, sourdough, kefir is my go-to for protein shakes, and also I love a good mango lassi. But I was also surprised to find out that other things like Tabasco sauce, soy sauce, fish sauce, and even Worcester sauce were in fact fermented. And of course, things like sour cream and yogurt, sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, things that are really staples of our modern diets, they're all fermented foods. So if you love fermented foods as much as I do, and you want to learn more about the science or how to make them, listen in. I am a teaching fellow at Harvard. Well, technically a teaching assistant because I'm not a grad student. So I have a really strange and interesting background, I guess. Um, My undergraduate degrees are in computer science and linguistics. I did a little bit of time. So I, after college, I I did some programming um, and I really wasn't, uh, it just wasn't the job for me. I really didn't like the just like doing the same thing every day, sitting in the same place, you know, I have much more of like, um, I just like to learn about new things all the time. I love exploring and connecting um, ideas from different things that I've learned. So I just, I started studying chemistry and biology just at Harvard Extension School um, post-bac. And I just took a few classes. I loved Um, I loved the classes that I took and I loved the way that they were taught. So I became a teaching fellow at the Extension School for General Chemistry with Greg Tusi, who is an amazing educator. And I just, um, I I learned so much from working with him and uh, he brought me on to the team for LPSA, which is how I got into teaching at Harvard. And then I just kind of, I've taught for several different courses at the kind of like introductory level in chemistry and biology. And so even though I'm not really an expert, I've never been like a scientist doing my own research um, or doing research (laughs) for someone else. Uh, I I really like come to love the fundamentals and and kind of explaining the fundamentals and introducing them to to people who um, are learning them for the first time because it's kind of a delicate, uh, just a delicate task to communicate these scientific concepts, which can be kind of complex to someone who has a limited background or, you know, hasn't seen them before. Maybe they saw them once before, but didn't really get it. So that's what I really love doing is, um, is breaking things down, (laughs) which is probably why I love fermentation too, because fermentation is also a process of breaking things down um, into a more digestible or, um, well, in the case of, uh, you know, like vegetable fermentation, a more digestible form or, um, or a d- more delicious form. <laughs> and the way I got into fermentation is actually through someone that I became friends with um, from a yoga teaching 
training and she gave me a SCOBY uh, to make my own kombucha um, maybe like six years ago or so for my birthday. It was a total surprise because I, I drank kombucha, but I had never thought of making it before. And she just gave me like some of the liquid and the, the SCOBY on top and told me how to do it. And it was super easy and really fun because I could make my own flavors. Um, I could really play with a lot of things like the type of tea. So in kombucha, you're fermenting um, sweet tea, tea sweetened with, with sugar, just regular uh, table sugar and producing um, vinegar and carbon dioxide um, mostly. So it, so, you know, you, but you can, you can play with like flavoring with different fruits. And, um, I, I did a lot of different flavors that I liked and it's kind of hard to go wrong, just really easy to do. So I kind of fell in love with fermentation there. And then I started doing vegetable fermentation, like sauerkraut and kimchi. And, um, and then I moved on to like pickles and, uh, salsas and hot sauces. And, and now I'm doing sourdough. And it just kind of like, <laughs> it fuels itself because it's so fun and delicious. And um, you get access to these flavors that just you can't really access any other way. When you think about translating science into the kitchen, is there room, is there room for intuition in the sense of like when you first start fermenting things? Um, I mean, most of us spend a lot of time in the kitchen just cooking and some follow recipes, other kind of just like go and act spontaneously. So mm -hmm. is there a role for intuition in the kitchen where if you're just starting off trying to make sourdough or kombucha or something like that, where your intuition can drive you where you yeah. have to of course know the process, but when it comes to being spontaneous and like dabbling in flavors or textures and things like that, that there's actually room for exploration. Definitely, there's so much room for exploration and intuition. Um, you, there are a couple of like guiding principles that you want to follow. Um, for example, uh, in vegetable fermentation, the use of salt and, um, and just a liquid barrier between the vegetables and the air. And those are basically the way that you protect your, your ferment from um, competing microbes that can, can be harmful or pathogenic. But as long as you stay within that framework, so basically your vegetables should taste salty <laughs> and just, you know, pleasantly salty. Um, and, and there's a liquid barrier between the vegetables and the air preventing mold from growing on your vegetables. You can really play around. You can, you can play with flavors and textures. Um, when you're making something like sauerkraut, uh, I enjoy just kind of a basic kraut that's just cabbage and salt, but you could add anything really that you could think of any vegetables. Sometimes I'll throw in some jalapenos, um, people like onion in their crowd or seaweed or, you know, almost any, you know, any vegetable could be thrown in there, carrot, or, you know, you could do a carrot and cabbage kraut or beet kraut. Um, all those things are delicious. And then you can play with spices. Just, you know, the, there's almost no limit to what you can do. Um, just by playing around <laughs> and exploring what you like, you know. I want to go back a little bit to the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. You told me that you teach fundamentals. I was actually really interested when I was looking up this Boston Fermentation Festival. Yeah, so the, <laughs> yeah. Um, the Boston Fermentation Festival is really how I got um, ex 
it, it helped me get excited about fermentation because I was doing mostly kombucha at the time and I was interested in making sauerkraut. I thought I'd check it out. This was like 2015. Um, and the Boston Fermentation Festival, uh, the past several years has been held at the Boston Public Market. And um, it's just a day where there are um, vendors that sell all sorts of fermented foods and, and beverages. Um, they'll have, you know, the typical, you know, sauerkraut and pickles and stuff, but then also, um, and kombucha, there's also um, koji, uh, which is a fungus that, um, that is used to make miso and among other things. Um, so there are more adventurous things there too that you can find. And then there's, there's a speaker series that happens um, during the day and, and the crowd mob, which is my personal favorite. Uh, and that's where I volunteered for the past few years. And at the crowd mob, um, basically several volunteers um, staff a, ta a long table and the table has uh, cabbage and carrots and and some other vegetables that are typically donated by a local farm and salt and spices and we basically help people make their own jar of sauerkraut so we provide them with a glass jar and um, and we just give them instructions on how to make a jar of sauerkraut and they do it in front of us and we guide them and then we give them instructions for how to keep it you know safe and um, and allow it to ferment in their home for you know a week to to a month, and uh, and so they walk away with their own personal jar of sauerkraut, which is really cool because everyone makes it a little differently. You know the way they chop the vegetables, or which vegetables they include, or how much salt, or what spices. So it's very like a very individualized, creative project where people learn about the principles of fermentation, how to make something like sauerkraut, and then they get to bring something home, which is really cool. So if we were there, can you walk us through the process? Like what instructions would you give us? Like what are the ingredients? Yeah, so the first thing that you'll need is a cutting board and a large bowl and some cabbage. And the first thing that, um, the first decision you have to make is how you wanna cut your cabbage. And typically cab the cabbage will be cut in long, thin slivers. And the reason for that is that it provides kind of a, a maximum of surface area, which means that you can draw a lot of water out of the cabbage leaves. So in, sour, in traditional sauerkraut, you don't add any additional water for the brine. The brine comes from the, the liquid in the cabbage. So you'll use salt and, and heavy massaging to <laughs> extract the water from the cabbage leaves. So um, but you can chop the cabbage in, in other ways too, like um, in like little chunks or um, I, I advise people not to slice, uh, to dice it into too small pieces because then it'll get kind of soft and mushy as it ferments. So the, the long thin slivers not only provide the surface area for, for the water extraction, but also um, they stay intact. And so you'll get some crunch at the end, which is usually what what people want out of something pickled. So, so then, so I'll kind of guide them as they're, as they're chopping and slicing a cabbage, they throw it in the bowl. And once their cabbage is sliced, they can add other vegetables if they want, like maybe some sliced carrot or um, radish or, uh, you know, whatever happens to be around. Um, and then, and then you want to do the salt. So when you're choosing your salt, 
typically um, you want something that is not iodized because iodine actually prevents um, microbial growth. It's, um, and yeah, it's antimicrobial. And, uh, and just something without like any additives like anti-caking agents. So kosher salt is good or some kind of um, sea salt or uh, Himalayan salt, any kind of uh, a less refined salt is, is usually preferred by, you know, avid fermenters because they provide these minerals and, you know, flavor, flavoring agents that aren't artificial, that are, you know, completely natural to the salt. Um, but any salt should work <laughs> theoretically. Uh, so you want to, I, I usually, when I'm making sauerkraut at home, I'll measure salt by mass. So I'll weigh the mass of my cabbage and then add um, 2% salt. And that usually, you know, makes, it, it's a really kind of fail safe way to make sure that you've salted <laughs> the right amount. Cause you know, you could have a different size cabbage one week and if you're using like a volumetric measurement, like tablespoons, you know, it's just hard to, hard to know that you're getting the right amount. But at the, at the um, kraut mob, since, you know, there aren't scales, uh, there are just, uh, they're just spoon measurements. So I say about a tablespoon per head of cabbage is like a safe um, place to start. And then, and then you can taste it. You just, you massage the, the cabbage leaves with your hands. This is kind of like a vigorous and I kind of find it a stress relieving process. You're kind of like getting your <laughs> anger, or your frustration or whatever your stress out on the cabbage leaves. Just like you got to work them pretty hard with your hands to, to get that water out and to get them to start to soften and wilt. Uh, takes about five minutes or so of kind of heavy, heavy massaging. And then it should start to pool brine at the bottom and you can taste the cabbage and make sure that it tastes salty, but not too salty. So like it shouldn't, um, it shouldn't be so salty that, you know, it's unpleasant. Um, and if it is, you just would add some more vegetables or, or cabbage to, to dilute it a little bit. Um, and you want it to have a salty flavor. So it's, if it's not salty enough, you'll just add some more. It's pretty simple, straightforward. You know, you don't really need to measure things if you don't, uh, if that's not like <laughs> your, um, thing. Uh, and then once the flavor tastes good, then you just pack it in a jar. You want to pack it really tight so that there's no room for air. So um, the vegetable fermentation is anaerobic. So the, um, the, the bacteria that produce lactic acid uh, do so in an anaerobic environment. And so you wanna prevent any air from, um, any air pockets or bubbles uh, from forming in the, in the jar. Uh, so you pack it down as much as you can, and then that'll create a liquid barrier on top, which prevents um, mold growth on top of your vegetables. You'll just leave it in a closed jar um, on, you know, somewhere out of direct sunlight, but in uh, at room temperature for anywhere from a week to months. And in the first week, the fermentation will be really active. So it produces a lot of carbon dioxide. So in that first week, you want to check on it like once or twice a day, open the top, press down on the cabbage leaves because as the fermentation produces carbon dioxide, those leaves are gonna start to push up towards the surface and that liquid on top will start to spill out over 
um, over the edge of your jar, or if your jar is tightly sealed, could uh, there could be a pressure um, buildup, which could eventually lead to an explosion. It's never happened to me, not with fermentation, not with uh, not with vegetable fermentation. Although I did have a a bottle of kombucha that I forgot about explode one day, and there were just like shards of glass in my dining room unexpectedly. <laughs> so it is it is a hazard, but it won't probably won't happen with your sauerkraut. Um, what's more likely is that the, the liquid will just start to leak out over the edge of the jar and the cabbage leaves will be exposed to the air so that makes them vulnerable to, to mold growth. So just tamping them down every day, making sure there's a liquid barrier between the cabbage leaves and the air um, will prevent mold growth. And the salty environment kind of inhibits pathogenic bacteria from growing. Once the fermentation takes off, it'll start producing lactic acid, which also acts as um, basically as a barrier to pathogenic bacteria. Uh, most bacteria are not tolerant of, of high acidity. So as your, fer your ferment becomes more acidic and it's already in a salty environment, you're keeping it really safe. So fermented foods are actually surprisingly safe to eat. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I was thinking a lot about bacteria and yeast in food and mm -hmm. yeast are a fungus. So it's actually interesting to think about um, the tipping point between when the introduction of bacteria and fungus into food becomes a tasty treat versus when it becomes something very harmful to eat. Yeah, definitely. It seems like from just a quick Google search that like over time, I guess, as humans have been interacting with microbes and including them or becoming aware of the fact that they are everywhere and then making a choice to include them in food, it's just really a matter of taste. Like which things taste good versus yep. which taste bad. Um, and I kind of wondered for you, I know I know when I was first getting into eating fermented foods, it was, it was an acquired taste because a lot of them are, like you said, like they can be salty, they can be tangy, they can be tart. And so what was that process like? And did you have to do any reprogramming in your mind where <laughs> it's kind of like, this is safe to eat. And so I'm just going to enjoy this flavor and go with it. Well, you know, I think that, I don't know why, but I think I've always kind of liked those funky flavors. Like I remember, um, I think I was about eight years old when I was introduced to like soft ripened cheeses. So, you know, any, any cheese that you get that has like that white, rind um, is, you know, is encased in mold. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and, and so, you know, cheese can be pretty funky. Uh, I always loved pickles and I even liked beer when I was <laughs> young. Like my dad would let me sip his, you know, take a taste of his beer. I think he thought that I wouldn't like it, but I actually did. Um, so I don't think I really had to do like a reset. I loved like like vinegar and mustard and all these tangy flavors. So I just really, once I realized how easy it was to ferment things on my own, I just like, it, <laughs> it was kind of unstoppable. I just got really excited and yeah, started doing a lot of it. Do you have a favorite fermented food off the top of your head? <sighs> there are a lot of good ones. Um, pickles, just regular, you know, cucumber pickles are actually kind of a recent uh, thing for me because they're a little tricky because they're so watery. So sauerkraut is pretty easy because the cabbage is is um, 
has a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, it has a lot of structure to it, so it doesn't get mushy. But with the cucumbers, they can they can get like kind of soft and just not be so good to eat if if you don't take a a few um, precautions. So or like you know, there are a few things that you can do to keep the pickles crunchy. And one thing that I learned is to add tannins, something with tannins. So I used to use just a regular black tea bag and now I use um, a couple bay leaves. Both of them have tannins. You can also use oak leaves or horseradish leaves or grape leaves. All these things are rich in tannins and they help keep the, the vegetable crisp. So you don't really need it for something like sauerkraut because it doesn't tend to get too mushy. But with the, with the cucumber pickles, um, I found that's really been helpful for keeping them crunchy. Uh, and those are just such a delightful food. <laughs> you can do so many things with them. You can just eat them on their own, or you can make a relish or put them on a sandwich. Uh, yeah, I, I really like the pickles. <laughs> and then the brine, I, I will often just drink the brine straight at the end. Um, it's great after a hangover. <laughs> or I, I don't know, I just think it's delicious. Yeah. And if you could choose a type of food to be, what type of food would you be? Mm. Um, I might be a beet. Really a beet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's the first thing I thought of. I, I really like beets. I love, um, I love their color as you know, the red purple beets, they're just such a beautiful, deep, um, you know, they're just so rich in color and flavor. I love how earthy they are. Um, they're rich in, in nutrients. They're sweet, but also kind of, yeah, they have that earthiness to them, kind of almost a little bitter. Beets are great. <laughs> and, and one thing I like to make too is a beet kvass. So it's, it's more of like a, a beverage. I'll just chop up some beets, put them in a salt brine and let them sit for a couple of weeks. And then, um, and then you just get this delicious purple, salty, um, sometimes kind of fizzy drink at the end. So I'm, I guess, I don't know if you've noticed. So a lot of people have been starting sourdough starters because that's another very simple like introduction to fermentation that people have taken up while they're at home. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering if you could walk us through from a chemist perspective, like what goes into pretty much like making sourdough for all those people who have just like borrowed a starter from their friend or just like have their cute little culture sitting on top of their microwave that they're feeding every once in a while. Like what's the chemistry of this whole process? Yeah, so sourdough is really simple. Um, it's flour, water, and salt basically. Uh, with a sourdough starter, you don't need to add any commercial yeast um, or yeast of any sort because the yeast is already present in the grain and in the air and on your hands. And so the yeast is just, it's already there. You already have everything that you need in that starter. Um, so the chemistry of it is really, uh, in, in addition to the yeast that are present, there are also those um, bacteria. So lactic acid producing bacteria are present in the sourdough starter as well. And so that's what gives it the sour flavor. And what's interesting about the starter is that the yeast and the bacteria are kind of a little bit in competition with each other. And um, if you let your sourdough starter sit for too long without feeding it, 
it will start to get very acidic. So the bacteria will take over and kind of outcompete the yeast. And so you'll notice it, it just starts to get like really funky smelling. Um, it doesn't, it does not smell appealing. <laughs> and the thing is you, all you have to do is take a small spoonful of that starter and feed it with fresh flour and water and you'll have a nice bubbling um, healthy starter again. So it's not ruined if you, if you forget about it for too long, you know, for any amount of time, unless it starts to grow mold, you're good. <laughs> so it's, it's the same principle where the acidity kind of prevents the growth of, um, any kind of pathogenic bacteria. And you can really use your senses to determine whether something is safe to eat or not, but kind of, it's kind of a general principle in fermentation, um, that, you know, between your eyes, nose, and and taste in your mouth, you can really tell if if something is 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 the way that it's supposed to be, or if it's kind of gone off in a direction that you know doesn't seem like you want to put it in your mouth. <laughs> so um, yeah, so you can really recover that funky starter by just taking a little bit of it and feeding it with salt. Uh, sorry, water and and fresh flour, and it'll the yeast in the flour um, will be able to start producing carbon dioxide and, and you'll get that bubbliness again. Yeah. And when it comes to being, when it comes to making like artistic choices in the kitchen, again, going back to this question of like flavor, um, texture, smell, are there any tips that you can give people at home for how to add a unique touch to their, to their sourdough? Well, I'm, I have been exploring different types of flour and I'm also actually new to the sourdough thing. I, I am one of those um, people who really started during at the beginning of the pandemic because I had, I had so much time to play around. Cause the thing about sourdough, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it takes regular intervals of care. You know, you have to feed your starter at least once a day, if not twice a day, and you have to do something with, um, you, you have to feed it in a certain proportion. So however much starter you have, um, you'll need to add, you know, that quantity of water and flour again to, in order to ensure that the yeast can, can kind of compete with the bacteria, which means that if you're feeding your starter regularly, you're going to end up with like a huge amount of it. <laughs> and that can be a problem. Um, just, you know, trying to figure out what to do with all of your sourdough starters. So, uh, I kind of got off track there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, just, just trying different things. So I've been trying different flowers. I, um, I've really been enjoying, uh, just trying like local flowers that I can find. Like um, I bought flour from One Mighty Mill, which is in Lynn and gets their grain from Maine. Uh, I, I love um, buying from these small, um, relatively small uh, flour mills that, that are really careful about where they get their grains and, and how they do their milling and extraction. Um, I just, you know, I love to use things that were cared for already. <laughs> and I feel like that contributes to the quality of the product and how much I enjoy the product too. Cause I know that every step of the way this was, you know, very carefully crafted. 
So that's something that gives me a lot of joy. I, I take a lot of pleasure in simplicity. So I tend not to do things that are too complex, um, you know, even in terms of like flavor uh, ingredients, I, I tend to just keep it pretty simple, flour, water, salt, starter. Um, but, but, you know, there are so many possibilities and, and the more that you play around with things, the more you'll just kind of come up with new things that you can do that, you know, that may or may not turn into something delicious, but then you know for next time what worked and what didn't work. And it, there are so many possibilities with fermentation. Are there any, off the top of your head, is there anything that's taboo when it comes to experimentation? Like, are there things that people often misunderstand about fermentation, which can cause issues when they're trying to dabble in the kitchen? Um, yeah, there are a couple. So one thing that, <laughs> one thing that was, um, that people found surprising at the kraut mob is that they that they had to leave their sauerkraut out at room temperature because I think the instinct is to put it directly in the fridge. Uh, so yeah, we have this instinct that everything must everything that is perishable must go in the fridge. And with fermentation, in order for those microbes to be able to do their job, they must be active at room temperature. So there's an ideal temperature of about 60 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit where they are most active. So if you stick your your raw vegetables and salt in the fridge, it's just not gonna ferment. You're just gonna have salty vegetables, which can still be good, but it's it's not really um, the desired you know, outcome. And another misconception, probably the other kind of biggest one that I've seen is that um, fermentation is the same as, as pickling with vinegar. And vinegar is a ferment, is a byproduct of fermentation. Um, the fermentation of, of, well, so sugar into alcohol and then alcohol into acetic acid. Uh, but vinegar itself does not produce fermentation. So if you, you know, immerse vegetables in vinegar, it's, it's really just more of an immersion. It's not actually an active process of, of the digestion of, you know, sugars into other metabolic pro products. So, um, Whereas lactic acid fermentation or lacto-fermentation is, is the active breakdown of sugars in sugars and starches in vegetables or, or dairy um, or meats to, to form lactic acid. So I was looking online about the differences between fermentation and pickling um, and this whole thing about, you know, going from sugar to lactic acid and then the difference between just immersing in vinegar. Mm -hmm. And the thing that kept coming up in my mind is the question of like, of sterile environments when it comes to, like we mentioned that the acidity and like the anaerobic environment that can be created in fermentation is, um, is inhibitory to the growth of a lot of pathogenic bacteria. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about if that's the same when it comes to pickling. And so you often like hear these stories of people um, getting, I think it's like botulism where they're yeah. and, and things go wrong. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Botulism is a really interesting, um, interesting phenomenon because it actually tends to arise from the canning of vegetables rather than fermentation. And the reason is that when you're canning vegetables, you are heating them to a high temperature with the intention of killing off everything present in in the, in the jar. 
And if you don't heat your vegetables for long enough, if you don't, you know, immerse them in that, in that hot water for long enough, then you actually create this ideal environment for anything that survives to completely dominate um, because you're just kind of, you're destroying so many competitors of, of that pathogenic bacteria that it just has free reign. And the, the botulism um, bacteria in particular uh, tends to release um, a spore at high temperatures. And so that is able to survive. Um, it's able to survive the immersion in hot water. And then it has this completely, you know, empty playing field to, to grow and dominate. And, and um, whereas in fermentation, because we're creating this environment that is hostile to pretty much everything that isn't the desired bacteria, it's really, um, it, it, it just really prevents any kind of dominance by, by those bacteria. They're just outcompeted. So it's often like a silent killer. Like when you're eating mm -hmm. bad canned food, you often can't tell, but with fermented right. products, can you tell? We met, we talked a little bit earlier about how you can kind of tell like if the taste is wrong, if it smells off. So like, mm -hmm. is there any warning for people that might be a little bit afraid of eating these products that they've made at home? Is there any indication that could tell them whether or not there might be some issues with it? Yeah. So the first thing you want to do is just look at it and make sure that you don't see any mold growth or off colors. So like if your green cabbage has turned black, <laughs> that's probably a sign that you shouldn't eat it. But if you're you know, if you made some sauerkraut with green cabbage and it looks kind of like a pale yellow, then um, that's your first sign that it that it's probably what you think it is. And then smell is the next um, indicator or another indicator. So it, it should smell kind of tangy and sour. Uh, and if it looks and smells the way that you kind of expect it to based on, you know, prior experience, then it's probably safe to go, but you can kind of taste just a little bit and make sure that there's nothing crazy going on. And it, it really does work like that. Um, and I, I wish I had a more robust, like scientific <laughs> uh, explanation for why that is. Like, I, I can't, I can't say um, how I know that exactly, except from my experience and from, you know, all of the many things that I've read about fermentation. It just, you know, fermentation has been a, a form of food preservation for thousands of years. Um, and it's, and I, I've kind of heard it said that it's really just been the advent of, of refrigeration and, you know, modern food preservation techniques that have caused fermentation to be, you know, um, much less at the center of our, of our eating practices than it, than it used to be even just, you know, a few generations ago. So it's really very safe and, um, yeah, and you can really trust your senses. <laughs> so you mentioned that it's the process of fermenting foods has been around for a really long time. When you think mm -hmm. about the future of fermented foods, what are some things that you're excited about or what are some innovations you'd like to see? Really what I would most like to see is more people doing it on their own. Um, I, I think, you know, because it is such an ancient practice, I'm not sure that there is much more I'm sure there are more like, you know, novel inventions of combinations of flavors and ingredients that people could come up with. 
Um, but but we're really harnessing the power of, of microbes to do our work for us. So we don't really get total say over what they do. But I would really, really be excited for more people to just try it on their own because it really is just kind of a home science experiment. I that's one of the things I love about it most is that it changes every day. You know, you can you can come back to it and and taste it and see does it, you know, does it taste the way I want it to? Like, and and you don't necessarily know at first if it tastes the way you want it to or not, but you just keep tasting it. And then at a certain point, it tastes really good and you stick it in the fridge, or you keep you know, you let it keep sitting out and then it kind of goes past its prime. And then, you know, I probably should have put it in the fridge last week. <laughs> and next time, you know, you, you leave it out for a little less time. So there's just, you can, you can really play around with it. You can learn a lot. You can watch stuff happening. You can watch phases of um, ecological succession happening. So like in sauerkraut fermentation, the first phase of the fermentation is very active and produces a lot of carbon dioxide. And then after about a week, it'll really settle down and it's still fermenting, but it's actually different strains of bacteria um, that are able to survive in a, in a more acidic environment. So that first kind of wave of fermentation creates an, an environment that is too acidic for those bacteria to survive. And so they die off and another wave of bacteria will take over. And there are actually, you know, from what I've read, three phases of ecological succession that happen in, in a sauerkraut fermentation. And you can tell because the, the activity changes and the flavor gradually changes over time. Like the difference between a one week sauerkraut fermentation and a one month, you know, it, it'll become more complex and, and a little more sour, but um, the flavor really develops. Like after about one week, the cabbage is still like pretty mustardy and you'll have a lot of acidity after one week, but after a month, it'll, it'll kind of mellow out a little bit. It'll still be acidic, but it won't have as much of that kind of sharp mustardy flavor. Do you find that people, they kind of time, do people often wait till the very end to like the final stage of flavor development? Or are there some people that might actually like that like intermediate mustardy flavor? Well, I actually do like it. <laughs> I've been doing like one to two week um, sauerkraut ferments recently because it does leave the cabbage a little bit more crisp. And um, and I, I do like that mustardy flavor. Yeah, so there's a lot of varieties. You could leave, you could leave your cabbage for just a couple of days and um, there's really no right answer because the fermentation is happening and you're the one that decides when it's done. It, when it tastes the way you want it to, it's done. So um, you could even, you could ferment your cabbage for like two or three days and then make a coleslaw out of it. And the coleslaw will have a slight tang to it. You know, you could still add some vinegar or maybe you don't need to add the vinegar anymore because you have that lactic acid from the sauerkraut. Um, and it just kind of, it softens the cabbage a little bit and just gives it that little bit of funk to, you know, kind of set it apart, but, or you could leave it for months. I mean, um, you know, traditionally the, the sauerkraut would be left in a, in like a 50, 40 to 50 degree, like cellar for, you know, months until, until, you know, people will, will ferment an entire vat, maybe like two, two to five liters of sauerkraut at a time. And they just kind of take from it as they, 
um, you know, as they're, as they want or need it and just let it sit in a kind of cool temperature for months. Um, and it's still fermenting at that lower temperature, just much more slowly. Well, thank you. It was really a pleasure to be interviewed and it's kind of always been, well, it's been kind of a, a, an aspiration of mine to, you know, get to talk more about fermentation and something that I'm interested in doing more, you know, um, just kind of educating and, and bringing it to more people. I feel like it's a really good avenue for, for the purpose that I'm trying to serve. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity.